aware of this, but there is an election on Tuesday. Some of you look surprised. I don't know how you've done it. I'm, I'm rooting for you. I'm proud of you. Good job. You've, you have been in a cave. You've had no TV or radio or news or, or anything. Uh, we, we're all well aware that there is an election uh, on Tuesday. We know that it's there. And really, depending on who you talk to, Wednesday morning, America is probably just going to be a smoldering ash heap. Um, to, to hear everybody talk about it, you know, if we make the wrong choice, and w- which choice that is, is is really dependent upon who you talk to. There's just there's going to be nothing left of America, so you might as well do what you you know your bucket list. If you could knock it out between now and Tuesday at like midnight, that would really be ideal because you're not going to have much longer. Um, the apocalypse is coming. Um, you're laughing because you know that it's it's absolutely true. I mean, that's the sort of the tone of the rhetoric that we've been hearing. And just like you, as a Christ follower and a Christian American, you spend a lot of time praying, hopefully, uh, about, uh, well, what are we going to do about this? Uh, who are we going to vote for? I, I, I thought, I've thought about it, and I've prayed about it, and I thought, you know, it's interesting to me, this isn't the sermon yet, just get... Just, we're just going to talk together for a few minutes here. It's interesting to me, we used to call politicians civil servants. Do you, does anybody remember this term, civil servants? Okay, some of you, some of you are like, what's a civil servant? Well, we used to call politicians civil servants. It's an interesting combination of words there, isn't it? Civil and servant. It, it seems to me we have less civil servants today. We have more uncivil servants and they're not even, servants isn't even the right word, is it? It's, it's uncivil. What, what is the better word there? Is it maybe power brokers? I, I, I think that might be right. I think uncivil power brokers. And so we've exchanged civil servants for uncivil power brokers. And it's really the lack of civility in servanthood that I think has led us to this incredible place of frustration and gridlock that we experience today. Now, this is just me. Maybe you disagree with me, but I think part of the problem is that we can't hear each other because we don't stop talking long enough to listen. I think that we can't work together because we've so vilified each other that we can't possibly work together. That would be like making a deal with the devil for crying out loud. You know, we can't make any type of compromise because that would mean we would be wrong, and that's just not how power brokers work. And so we've exchanged civil servants for uncivil power brokers, and we've got gridlock, and we've got frustration, and people are frustrated, and they feel disenfranchised from a system that they feel no longer works in their best interest. They feel nobody is civil or serving, and it's a frustrating place to be. I feel that way. I know a lot of you feel that way. And so we have this election, which I think a lot of folks are framing as sort of the nuclear option, you know. We'll, we'll push the button, we'll blow the whole thing up, we'll let the dust settle where it is going to settle, and then we'll have back at it. But it's funny, I think with this nuclear option, we're actually just voting for more of the same. It's an interesting place we find ourselves in. That's just my thoughts. And yet I wonder about this. As Christians, what do we have to offer in this election season? 
I'm not, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I, I know some of you were hoping for that, that God came to me last night and said, this is who you should vote for. I don't have that answer for you. I'm still praying about that if you want to know the truth. But what is it as Christ followers, what are we called to do in this election season? And, and really at all times, I, I want to offer to you four things that I think are super important. The first is this, is that it really at the end of the day, we are called to be people of peace and people have peace when they have trust. We are called to trust God first and foremost. You know, it's interesting to think about all of the world history that's come and gone. You know, you've had Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans, and yet who has remained? Whose kingdom has remained? It is the kingdom of God. And more certain am I that the kingdom of God will exist tomorrow morning than I am confident that America will exist tomorrow morning. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to wake up and I'm still going to be in America tomorrow. We are people that are people in the kingdom of God. We are first citizens of God's kingdom. And so we can trust that God is going to be God and that his uh, reign is going to be for eternity and that our citizenship is in a kingdom that will never, ever fail. So we can be people of peace because we trust in God. The second thing I think that as Christ followers were called to do is this, is to model unity, to model unity. Uh, we read that at the beginning of, of our service this morning, Psalm 133.1. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers or brethren, depending on your translation, dwell together in unity. It is good. And so within this room, I want to ask for a show of hands, there are red and blue people in this room. I, again, I don't want you to raise your hand. There's red, there's blue, there's independents, there's people that are going to vote for one, there's people that are going to vote for another, and there's people that are going to vote for somebody else. And yet we're all here, we're all gathered in the same name, we're all working for the same goal, and as a matter of fact, we even contribute our finances towards something in common. So what is it that the church has to offer the world at a time like this? It's that we can show that we can get along. Really, it's that we can show we can work together. It's that we can show that there are other things more important and that we can work together on those things. And so we can model civility. I think that's super important that we model civility. The second thing we can do is we can model service. Matthew 20. Uh, this, this verse is so relevant, I think, in many ways. Matthew 20. Verse 25 through 28, uh, you've got two disciples who've been running for political office, political office of the right hand of Jesus and political office of the left hand of Jesus. One wants to be president, the other wants to be vice president. They've, uh, James and John have even brought their mother in to offer a stump speech at this, uh, this stop here, and so she's campaigning for them, and Jesus knows, and the other disciples hear it, and they're saying, well, what about us? We've had our campaign posters up this entire time too. Aren't you going to vote for us, Jesus? Here's what Jesus says, verse 25. He says, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. This is Jesus saying, Stop it. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, listen, there are power brokers, civil and uncivil, who are out there trying to clamor for office. Jesus says, don't worry about that. What you worry about is serving. You worry about being a servant. So we can be people that model service. And then last, and most importantly, I dare say, is this. It comes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
Paul's writing this to a church that does not even have the ability to vote for the next emperor or tyrant or whatever you want to call the current Caesar at the time. And yet Paul says, here's what I'd like you to do, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. He says, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. So you pray for him and you thank God for everybody. For who? For kings like Herod and Nero, yes, like them, and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. You see what Paul says this is, it's government's job in, in Paul's mind to let us live in peaceableness, in quietness, in dignity. Why? Verse 3 says, this is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul says it is so good when the government allows us the freedom and the peace to spread the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says, so that's what you pray for. You pray for the peaceableness, for the quietness that we can go about our business unhindered. And so that's what I think as we think about what, is, what does the church have to offer during this election season? What do we as Christians have to offer? I think it's that we can model peace because we have our trust in Jesus Christ. We can model civility because we are united in something greater than a political party. We can model service because we've got bigger ambitions than a political office, and we can pray. We can be people of prayer, and this morning I'd like to do that. So why don't you bow your heads with me and we'll, we'll pray. Gracious Lord, we do thank you that we live in a time and a place where we can practice democracy, Lord. And we say practice because we still maybe haven't quite gotten it right yet. Lord, we pray for this upcoming election. And God, we ask very, very desperately that you would guide it. Lord, we won't pretend to, to have your mind. We won't pretend to have your wisdom or know what the right thing to do is. But Lord, we will trust in you. We'll trust that your spirit will communicate with us. We'll trust that as we look at your word and as we pray that you can make choices clear to us about who it is and what it is that we should vote for as individuals, God, because that is a responsibility we have. But Lord, this morning we, we claim no one is our king except you. And so Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so politics aside, 2 Corinthians, that's where we're at this morning. If you've got a Bible, flip over there, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to uh, finish our series here called 3D Vision. 3D Vision, if you've not been with us, is the ability to see things the way that God sees things. And so last week we talked about what does that mean to see things the way that God sees things. It's that we look at the world through the lenses of eternity and love. That we realize that, that this world is bigger and more and greater than just the 70-something years we're estimated to live. We look at the world and go, the, the stakes aren't just for a few decades, but for all of eternity. And so we look at the world through that lens of eternity. We're also called to look at the world through the lens of love. We, we say, yes, we know that the stakes are high, but we also know that God sent His Son because He loves the world and He desires that all people, as the text we just looked at, God wants everybody to come into a saving relationship with Him. And so we look at the world through the lens of God's love. And if we do that, our lives will be different. They will be different. If, if we see in 3D, here's what's going to happen. It's going to cause us to put God first in everything. 
Now, I know we say this a lot, you know, you should put God first in your life. You should put God first in your business. You should put God first in your marriage. But we don't offer maybe a lot of tangibleness to go with that. What do we really mean by that? You know, we say it so often, so, so vaguely, so universally, that it it's almost lacks any meaning. Paul, this morning in the text we're going to look at, is going to let us know that God should come first in everything very specifically. And he's even going to call out our most intimate relationship, that of marriage, and he's going to say, you need to put God first even there. Uh, let's look at the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16. Here's how it reads in the New Revised Standard. It says, do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship is there between light and darkness? Or what agreement does Christ have with the devil? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God, that's you, with idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That word there at the beginning says mismatched in the New Revised. The better word for that is unequally yoked. I know that's two words in English, but when you come over from Greek to English, it's hard to get one that works well. Uh, Paul is literally saying, do not be bound together with a non-believer. In a covenant relationship, in a binding partnership, do not be bound together with a non-believer. Don't be unequally yoked. We don't do a lot with uh, yokes today. I mean, not egg yokes, the yoke that connect two animals, you know, a yoke of oxen. I saw no yoke of oxen in the parking lot today, so I assume you all either left it at home or you just don't have one. Uh, yoke are not like leashes. I, for all of you urbanites, I've got a picture here of a yoke of oxen. Here we go. There we go. Those are two oxen. There, those are oxen is the plural of ox, and they have that bar between them there. Do you see this? This is the yoke, okay? It is a heavy bar. It is a heavy-duty, uh, like a four-by-six bar laid across their necks. It's got wood coming down and, and fastening them into it. It's kind of like the old stocks, if, you, if you've seen pictures of those or if you've been to a Renaissance fair. You know what I'm talking about. You put your head and your arms through. They are literally sort of stocked together. That's a yoke, okay? Now, here's the thing with a yoke is it sort of uh, it binds them together, it forces them together, and then it channels all of their energy energy into one thing. You, you look in the back here, you'll see this little bar coming down. There's a plow back there, and these two oxen together are plowing, and they're, they're tearing up the ground so that way some farmer can come and plant things there in the ground. Very efficient system. Uh, it was replaced by the tractor because it was, the tractor is a little more obedient than the two oxen were. But, but this is the image. Paul says, do not yoke yourself together with a non-believer. The question is, why? Well, here's why. Because every believer has taken on Christ's yoke. Matthew 11.30, it reads this way. It says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christ follower, you already have taken on the yoke of Jesus Christ. You, you are not a free agent. You're not by yourself. You are harnessed to Jesus Christ. You are bound to Jesus Christ. Yes, he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it is binding and it is demanding. It demands your life. And, and Paul says, listen, you have been bound to Jesus Christ, and so if you're going to bind yourself to somebody else, what's going to happen? 
What you saw in the picture, there's a bar between you two. If one tries to go this way and the other tries to go this way, there's not a lot of play in a, in a four by six beam of wood. It's not going to give a whole lot. You're not going to go anywhere is what's going to happen. You're going to be frustrated in your efforts. This is why back in the Old Testament, God had a lot of really specific rules. One of them, he said this, is don't, don't uh, mismatch animals in a harness like that. So, in other words, don't put an ox and a donkey in there because one's more powerful than the other. It's going to overpower it. It's going to drag it. to the. It'd be like tying a St. Bernard and a, a Pomeranian together. It, it, it's just a bad combination. You don't want to yoke those things together because eventually the Pomeranian is going to be run to death, literally, and then that poor St. Bernard's got to pull all of that dead weight around. I mean, no pun intended. That's really what's going to happen. This is the Old Testament, and, and God uses it there to tell the Israelites, listen, don't be harnessed like that to people that don't follow God. Paul's going to say the same thing. He said, do not be harnessed like that to people that are not Christ followers. Why is that? It's because it's an unequal match. Uh, Paul's going to say, listen, as you start to pull towards Jesus, the person that is yoked with you is going to pull away, and then you're going to be stuck. Now, clearly this applies to marriage. This clearly, clearly applies to marriage. It is a binding relationship. Uh, Paul is going to prohibit this idea that you would marry yourself to somebody who is not a Christ follower, which means this morning this, that if you are here and your fiancé, your boyfriend, your girlfriend is not here, that's a problem. You're going to have to get on the same stage spiritually, otherwise it is not going to work. What do I mean by that? It's going to cause you pain. I've talked to a lot of folks that are in mixed faith marriages, and I've never once had somebody say, you know what, there's never been any conflict, friction, or pain as a result of our different value systems. I've never had anybody tell me that. I've had a lot of people say, it, it's really difficult to be married to somebody that doesn't have the same values and desires and call of God in their life as I do. It, it causes a lot of pain. It causes a lot of friction. You maybe don't feel that right now, and it may take a year or two before you get to that place, but it will happen. It could happen something like maybe you have a child together, and all of a sudden you say, man, wouldn't it be neat if we took our, our son or our daughter and, and we had them dedicated in the church? Wouldn't that be special? And your spouse can say, listen, I, I, that's not my thing. It's never been my thing. I don't know why you're asking me. There's going to be pain there. There's going to be friction that's going to be caused as you're pulling towards Christ and the other person is not. It may be that, that as that child gets a little bit older, they start to wonder, hey, listen, I know that you're waking me up early to go to church. That's fun. But I've noticed that there's another person in our house that does not go to church. It's mom or dad. They're not going. Why do I have to go? And there's going to be friction. You don't even have to have children. Do you? Oh, that's fine. We're never going to have children. Okay, sure. Well, you don't even have, to have kids. Is God works on your heart and you get drawn closer to God and you think, man, I would really like to give up a week of my vacation time to serve God in this way. Or I'd like to just give up a Saturday or even better yet, just a Saturday morning. I'd like to go and I'd like to serve at Meals Inc. And I'd like to go do that. And you invite your, your spouse to come with you and say, hey, let's go. We're going to go deliver meals. And they say, well, I'm not into that sort of thing. You're going to have friction. As they ask you, why are you giving up two mornings now as opposed to just one or you say, man, you know what? God has really put in my heart that I need to sacrifice and I need to give. And you know what I think? I want to give 10% of uh, my money to the church. That's not going to go over real well. 
It's not going to go over well. Your spouse is going to say, why? You're going to do what with our money? Why don't you just send it to TBN? That way they can buy another toilet, you know, gold toilet seat or something. Why don't you do that? That's what's going to happen. There's going to be conflict. So Paul says here real clearly, he says, listen, you do not connect yourself in a binding covenant type of agreement with somebody who is not a believer. Now, I've said all this, and I know there's a lot of you here this morning. You're here this morning, and your spouse is not. Paul has different things to say to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, back in the very first book of the Corinthian epistles, Paul knows that it's hard. How hard is it? Well, Paul says, about the matters that you wrote to me about. Apparently, it was so hard that people in the church at Corinth were saying, listen, it is so hard for us to have mixed marriages faith-wise, where, where I believe in, in Christ and, and my husband or wife does not believe in Christ. What do we do, Paul? And they're asking this question, Paul, should, should I divorce my husband? Should I divorce my wife so that way I can pursue God full-time and, and not be burdened by this? Because it causes so much pain. Here's what Paul says. Go, go home and read this yourself, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. But just, just that last verse, verse 16, it says this. It says, wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. What Paul is saying is this, is listen, if you are in one of those marriages where your faith does not match up, he says, stick it out. Because here's what you're doing. He says, you are bringing Christ into your home. You are bringing Christ into your marriage. You might be the only Christ that your husband or your wife will get close to. You might be the only Christ figure that your children will ever see. So stick it out. Do not deprive them of that ability to be able to see Jesus through your love and through your service. Notice Paul says you might save your husband, you might save your wife. Paul does not say it will be easy. Paul does not guarantee that it is going to work out as far as salvation. But he says, listen, if you stick it out, it could have eternal rewards. I know it's going to be hard, Paul says, but whether you're single or you're married, in that whole chapter he talks about this, whether you're single or married, what I want you to do is to put God first. How do you do that? By being faithful and by showing the love of Christ. That's what Paul is going to call us to, to put God first in every area of our life. What does that mean? Well, let's just say this here. It means this. It means that we put other people first. We put God first when we put other people first. Notice Paul here in 2 Corinthians, he has suffered so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has, I mean, he has had horrific experiences. He's been shipwrecked, and he's been beaten, and he's been stoned, and he's, he's been through the ringer. And yet, what is he concerned about? In verse 5 of chapter 7, he says, My body has had no rest until I heard how your faith was. Paul says, you know what? It has been uncomfortable for me to be in prison. It has been uncomfortable for me to be in these situations. But the thing that's tore me up more than anything else is, is that I just felt uh, uneasy because I was concerned about your faith. Paul is more concerned about the Corinthians and their faith than he is about his own well-being. Paul puts other people first. You know, we live in a me-first society, friends. We really do. If you don't believe me, give up your line uh, your spot in line at the grocery store. Back your cart up and let somebody else come in there. I had a really awkward experience this week with that. I had a shopping cart full of like four things, and there was a senior lady that came around, and she had her cart full of all manner of things. And so there was two lanes open at Kroger. It doesn't happen often, but they were both there waiting. And so I was pulling into the lane closest to me, and I thought she was going to pull into my lane too. And so we almost had a collision, and I stopped, 
and I smiled at her. And I said, you, you can go here if you'd like. And she said, why? And I said, well, it, because I, I thought you were coming for this land. I'm going to let you have it. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm going over here. And I, she's just not a real good car driver. I said, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Well, you go there and I'll go here. She said, well, you can go in front of me. I said, well, there's two lanes open. I'll go here and you go there. But I mean, this is a major deal. I mean, you do not want to breach etiquette in the grocery store over who goes first. Try it. Put other people first. See what happens. How about this? The next one here is this, is that we're called to live for eternity and not just today. Paul lived for eternity. Well, what do I mean by that? It means that Paul's life doesn't make sense without Jesus. Paul's life makes no sense without Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, here's what he says. He says, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul, what is he saying? He's saying, listen, if, if Jesus is false, if this heaven thing is false, if these promises are not good, he said, I've wasted my life. I, I want to ask you, does your life make sense even if eternity doesn't exist? Blaise Pascal, he's this philosopher. He came up with this, he calls it the great wager. It's, you know, it's okay. It's an okay wager. He said it was the great wager. People have called it the, the Pascal wager. I, I'm, I'm unconvinced. But here's what he said. He said, listen, it goes something like this, is that if you live your life like there is no God and no eternity and you're wrong, you're really messed up for like forever. And so he said, that's a bad bet. He said, but, he said, if you live your life like there is a God and you're wrong, what have you lost? You know, a couple years, maybe a little bit of hedonism here and there. You're really not out much, is what Pascal said. Now, here's the thing. Paul, I think, disagrees with this wager because Paul says this. He says, listen, if Christ isn't true, he says, then you should feel sorry for me more than anybody else. He says, because I've given my life 110% to Jesus Christ, and it will make no sense if he's not real. I think Pascal is a lot, a lot like many of us. He's really comfortable in his faith, right? He's comfortable in his Christianity. He's comfortable in his lifestyle. His life really isn't sold out to Jesus. It's, it's sort of a comfortable addition to it. Did you know that there are atheist churches springing up all over America? This is true. I, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. They call them the humanist church. I don't think we have any in Bowling Green, but the, the humanist church what is the humanist church? Well, they don't believe in God, but a lot of these folks are people that they grew up in Sunday school, you know, singing moral sto- songs, hearing moral stories, eating goldfish because that's good for your spirit, doing all those kinds of things. And then they ended up having kids and they were like, man, we don't believe in God, but church was so much fun. We should totally take our kids to atheist church where they don't believe in God, but they eat goldfish and they sing songs and they have good moral stories. Wouldn't that be a good idea? And so, I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up. They are springing up all over America. These humanist churches, they meet on Sunday morning. You can come and they tell stories. They show PBS videos, a lot like the uh, Unitarian Church in town. And they do all these sorts of things. And, you know, and they don't really believe in God, but they're there to have a good time. Okay. I'm afraid that if Jesus wasn't real, and we've, somehow we found this out, I, I, I wonder how many of you would come back next week. You'd be like, well, we were wrong about that, but church is fun. You know, we like hanging out together. You know, I guess we'll stick with it. I, Paul would not come back to church. Okay, I'll tell you that right now. If Paul found out Jesus was not real, and if Paul found out that the resurrection was false, he would not be back next week. Because Paul would say, I've got to make up for lost time. 
I mean, that's how Paul lived his life. He started out persecuting the church. He didn't believe in Jesus. He thought the law was the way to go. And so what is he doing? He's running 110 miles an hour in this direction because he thinks that's the right way. Christ gets a hold of him. It changes his life. And he turns around and he runs 220 miles an hour back the, different, the opposite direction because he's got to make up for lost time. Paul's life makes no sense outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to know, have you put God first to such an extent that your life makes no sense without Jesus Christ? Friends, it's important that we live that way. Paul's a great example of that. Another great example of that is a guy by the name of St. Patrick. Maybe you've heard of him. I know we celebrate him in March, but he's got a great story. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with St. Patrick's story, it goes something like this. He grew up in England. His parents were believers, but he never had much time for faith or Christianity. He gets kidnapped, taken to Ireland as a slave. He's in slavery in Ireland for a couple years, and then a, a miraculous thing or two happens, and he gets free of slavery. He finds a ship. He makes it back to England. And while he's there, he says, you know, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. And so he, he gives his life to Jesus Christ. He puts him first, and he says, the best thing I could do would be to study for the priesthood. So he does that, and then he says, you know who really needs Jesus is all those pagans over in Ireland. And so he leaves England to go back to, to witness the people who had captured him and put him in slavery just a few years before. How do you make sense of something like that if it's not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? St. Patrick's life was so given to Jesus that he said, man, what I really want to do is to live my life in a way that shows Christ everybody. He had that 3D vision. He could see the eternal stakes that, that were at hand for the people of Ireland, and he saw the love of God for those folks, and he said, I can't live here and, 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 and be a faithful Christ follower. But you can't make any sense out of it other than Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I, I thought we might say together a prayer of St. Patrick's. It's called St. Patrick's Lorica. It's super long because the Celts like to repeat everything ten times. So I've reduced it a bit. But, but I want you to notice in the prayers, it, I'm going to have you stand here in a second. We're going to pray this together in response, is that everything centers on Christ. It starts with what Christ is done and who Christ is today. And he says simply, I arise today. In other words, I got out of bed this morning because Jesus Christ is there for me. He's going to pray, and we will pray, that God would be in every aspect of our life and that Christ would be with us every step of the way. And so this morning, I'd love for us as a church, if you can do that, why don't you stand and let's say this prayer together. Why don't you stand with me here? I'll read the small portions. You can read the bigger ones. It is, I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth and His baptism. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me. God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me. God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me. God's hand to guard me. God's way to lie before me. God's shield to protect me. God's host to save me. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right and Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the eye that sees me. Christ in the ear that hears me. Amen. Amen.
this morning, if you've never put God first, if you've never put Christ first, if you've never accepted Him this morning, we'd love for you to come forward to be baptized into Him and to make that step of putting Christ first in your life. Others of you, you need to put Christ first in your life. Maybe you were baptized into Him a while ago. You've, something's happened, and He's slipped into second or third place. This morning, if you'd like to pray about that, I'm going to be down here. Some of our elders will be down here. Some of our staff will be down here to pray with you. Uh, because it's so important that we leave this morning putting Christ first. Because if you can't put Christ first at church, where, where can you put Christ first?